What's going on, everybody? Brendan Schaefer here with you for another episode of B-Shape Daily. Happy to be here with you, breaking down a Cardinals win on opening day against the Pittsburgh Pirates. The Cardinals get it done at Bush Stadium on Friday by a score of 5-4, to four, and it ended up being a lot more interesting and anxious than perhaps it needed to be. We'll get into all the details of the game as the Cardinals are 1-0. I know it's late July, but this is game one of the season, and so, hey, tied for first. Uh, I, I know the Cubs beat the Brewers on Friday, but didn't really look at much else that happened in the National League. But I know with a win, the Cardinals are tied for first. I can say that pretty confidently as St. Louis takes down their another division rival in the, the Pittsburgh Pirates, 5-4. to four. It was a game in which the Cardinals really did a lot of the things that they said they were going to do. When you talk about, you know, really dating all the way back to the winter meetings in December and the Cardinals talking about their strategy for the offseason and what they were looking to do, what they were looking to add to the roster and really what they weren't looking to add to the roster. And they weren't looking to add any outfielders, you know, despite the fact that Marcelo Zuna was destined to depart in free agency. It took until about February, I think, before that actually happened. But the writing was on the wall the whole way through that the Cardinals weren't interested in adding any outfielders because they wanted to see what they had in the internal options in guys like Tyler O'Neill, in guys like Lane Thomas. And so that's an example of what happened in Friday's game. We saw Tyler O'Neill get the start in left field, as we've known for a few days and weeks now that that probably would be the case. Dylan Carlson, a lot of clamoring for him. We're going to see him at some point, but the Cardinals were clear. Lane Thomas... Tyler O'Neill. these guys are a little bit closer to, I think, what the Cardinals would term decision time, where a decision is going to have to be made on their status a lot sooner than you're going to have to decide about Dylan Carlson's future. There will be time for Dylan Carlson, but from the Cardinals' perspective, they say, look, we've also invested in these other players, and we want to see what they can do if given the opportunity before we have to make decisions on things like arbitration are they worth keeping around once they get to that point and we're going to have to pay them a little more money or make decisions on their status with regard to whether or not they might be a trade piece you know you think about the guy that came in as a prospect in a trade a couple of years ago Tyler O'Neill coming over to the Cardinals in exchange for Marco Gonzalez Marco Gonzalez of course ends up now with the Mariners still they signed him to a contract and he's done quite well with them after several years in Seattle, and he was their opening day starter on Friday, I do believe. And so you look at that trade and say, well, the Mariners have sure benefited from it. They got a left-handed starter who's now atop their rotation. Cardinals didn't think they had room for Marco Gonzalez. Didn't ever really give him the opportunity to kind of grow into the pitcher that he's since become with Seattle. Just didn't have the chances to, to pitch the way Seattle has given him the ball every fifth day and said, go for it. The Cardinals have kind of done the same similar thing with Tyler O'Neill, the guy they acquired for Marco Gonzalez. Over the last few years, I know O'Neill has had injury concerns and hasn't always been able to be on the field, but he's also spent a lot of time in AAA, has done quite well there, and the Cardinals, I think, are looking at him and saying, we got to know, we got to find out one way or the other because it's not going to help the Cardinals any if they trade Tyler O'Neill away you know, at, at this year's deadline, next year's deadline. Just hypothetically speaking, trade away a guy that you don't know a lot about, you had in your system for a while, but you never really gave him the chance to flourish, 
and then for another team to potentially reap the benefit and flourish, and, and you never really know what you had in him. That's not something the Cardinals, I, I think, want to let happen with Tyler O'Neill. In the case of Lane Thomas, you can make a similar argument. Uh, O'Neill's been around a little bit longer as far as getting his feet wet in the majors before Thomas, but Thomas certainly last year got his feet wet a little bit with the Cardinals, had that injury toward the end of the season, so he didn't get to play in September really, but a talented player, another guy that has produced at the AAA level. And so the Cardinals want to see what they have in these guys. I know Thomas didn't get the start on Friday. He did play uh, defensively, come into the game for Dexter Fowler in the ninth. But I think you're going to see plenty of those two over the next few weeks. And again, the time for Dylan Carlson will come. But I think it I think it is worth noting. Another example is Randall Grichik, right? The Cardinals, he's a guy that I would say it's fair to to assess that the Cardinals did give Grichik a little bit more of that leash. He was the, the everyday center fielder for, for a little while in St. Louis. And at the end of the day, they said, here's what we think he is. They they had him long enough to make the determination for themselves. They traded him to Toronto. And with the Blue Jays, he's also signed a contract and has done a fine job. He hasn't blown anybody away. I think he's still pretty much been within the, the realm of what you thought Randall Grichik would be, You know what you saw in St. Louis. That raw power is there. Is he consistently going to be you know, an all-star caliber player. No, they haven't really seen that from him in Toronto either, but but certainly has, has been able to produce as an everyday player. And I think that's just what the Cardinals want to give Tyler O'Neill a chance to do. And so he's a starting left fielder, and boom, he rewards you. Opening day, hits a home run uh, into left field and gets the party started for the scoring for the Cardinals in the third inning against Joe Musgrove. How about Dexter Fowler? He goes deep in the fifth to right field. And I love seeing it, you know, that the ball lands just over the wall, over the over the outstretched arms of the right fielder. And you can see in the TV shot, just to the left, the Cardinals bullpen there. And the Cardinals relievers all raising their arms, pumped fists, because they got a good glimpse of it. It had a great angle at seeing the play develop as the ball goes over the wall. And so their teammates are excited for their guy. And that was kind of the moment that I was like, baseball's back. Like, I know, you know, the game had started, and I know we had been doing this summer camp thing for a few weeks, and, you know, it's just kind of going through the motions of it. You know we are excited. You're you're at the ballpark, and things are happening. But it wasn't until that, until I'm watching the Dexter Fowler home run and the reaction that the, the Cardinals relievers had in the bullpen to it, where I was like, I, I, I felt something. And that was it was good to see, good to feel, and certainly hopefully Cardinals fans were feeling good about the proceedings of the game. Uh, at that point, and then you get into the sixth inning, and you get the classic vintage Yadier Molina blooping an RBI single on the first pitch that he sees, uh, not only in the at-bat, but it was the first pitch that the reliever Clay Holmes threw after relieving the starter for Pittsburgh, Joe Musgrove. You know, the first pitch the guy comes in and throws faces Yadier Molina, and it's not like he hit it, hit it hard. I don't know what the exit velocity was on it, but it had to be somewhere in like the 60s, 70s miles per hour because he just blooped it. And it hung up in the air, hung up in the air, and I'm watching it. And the left fielder's coming in on the ball, and I'm like, wait a minute. I don't think he's going to get to that. And so it's just a classic Yadier Molina RBI single. Uh, you know, the guy puts the ball in play. He kind of makes the defense make a play. And in that case, it was just hit into no man's land. And so another RBI, Yadier Molina gets his first of the season. Cardinals take a lead 3 nothing at that point in the sixth inning. And to that point, Jack Flaherty had been absolutely stupendous. 
And as it turned out, it was a good thing that Yachty did get that RBI in the sixth right before the top of the seventh because that was the first kind of moment that Jack Flaherty ran into any trouble. And look, I think it's kind of overselling it to call it trouble, but the Pirates did score a couple of runs in that inning, and so you you, you got to call it for what it was. But I don't think Jack Flaherty had anything to be ashamed about with his performance, not only in the game, but in that inning in particular. You know, for the first six innings, Jack Flaherty only needs 65 pitches to get through them. He's thrown up eights and 11s and 12s and 12s as far as pitches per innings. He was just spectacularly efficient on Friday night. Looked every bit of the ace that we saw from July onward in 2019 and came press box announcements. I believe it was after the fifth inning the announcement came that Flaherty had surpassed his career high in consecutive scoreless innings uh, dating back to last year, talking about just the regular season. But he had eclipsed, I believe, 23 was the previous mark, and so he had upped it to 24, and then pitched that scoreless sixth inning to make it 25 before he they eventually scored off of him in the seventh inning. But you know, he's he, it just kind of was a reminder of you look at what he's done last year. He was so great for the Cardinals down the stretch, and then you get that announcement like, oh yeah, he was actually on a on a 19 inning scoreless streak to end 2019, as far as the regular season is concerned. So. Flaherty was lights out through six, and then you get into the seventh. They get four consecutive singles against Jack Flaherty in the seventh inning. The Pirates do. And on the fourth one, that's the one where you you can say the dam breaks, but really it's just that was the first time they scored any runs. You go single, 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 all of them station to station, and you look at the exit velocities on those hits. Not one of them exceeded, not, not even exceeded, none of them got to 90 miles per hour off the bat. The first one was 77.6. I believe it was an infield hit that Josh Bell was able to beat out, hustling to get to first base. Colin Moran hits one at 89.7. Jose Osuna, although Osuna did rip a foul ball left, you know, left of the left field foul pole that nearly had home run distance, and off the bat I was like, uh-oh, that could be trouble. But it, it hooked foul. But then Osuna gets a single, 88.8 off the bat. So, again... 77, 89, 88. None of those are, are what I would consider a hard hit ball. You're not even getting to 90. I'm not I'm not going to call that a hard hit ball. I don't know what StatCast officially does, you know, as far as hard hit rate and, and the way they do those percentages. But looking at the, the screen there for StatCast, they have the 89 is kind of in red, which I guess would indicate a harder hit ball, but I wouldn't consider that very hard um, if you're not getting to 90. And certainly when you think about legitimate hard hit balls, like some of the ones that KK gave up in the ninth, we could talk about that in a minute. Um, But those were over 100 miles per hour off the bat. This was not even getting to 90. And so you're in that situation. You're Flaherty. You got one out in the inning. You just loaded the bases on three singles. that You didn't really do anything wrong. They just, it's just what happened. I mean, I'm looking at the expected batting average. The Josh Bell XBA was 090. So the expected batting average under 100 on that. Give a little more credit to Colin Moran because he put the ball in the air a little bit with an 11-degree launch angle. Expected batting average of 760. Um, And then the other one from Osuna, ground ball. Again, you put it in the spot that he did. Decent expected batting average, 480. But again, it wasn't like he was giving up hard contact. And so he gets into that situation with the bases loaded, and you're like, all right, now we're going to see what you're made of. And he strikes out Guillermo Heredia on a pitch that was just... Just, I mean, 95 at the knees, 
I saw people tweeting, what was he looking at? What was he looking for? I mean, he just froze him up. When you're, when you're against a world-class athlete like Jack Flaherty in that situation, and you're, you're trying to guess what he's going to throw you in a two-strike count, I believe it was a 3-2 pitch as well. So you're, you, the gears are turning in your mind at that point, and you're trying to figure out what he throws, and he just pumps 95 at your knees right below the kneecap. And I think it was, you know, on, on Fox Sports Midwest, they had the, the box, uh, the, the strike zone around around the plate showing you kind of what you can expect. And it was right there on the on the dot, on the, the bottom edge of that strike zone. So just a great pitch by Jack Flaherty. It's like, all right, now I just felt like he was just going to put Jacob Stallings, the, the uh, pirate catcher, pardon me, I thought he was going to put him away. But again, gets into a situation Stallings puts the ball in play, single, two-run score. You know, he gets it under the glove of Paul Goldschmidt, who was playing pretty far off the line, but he was right-handed batter, so they kind of had a little bit of a shift on. Colton Wong was playing a lot more up the middle on that play, and so I would say typically, I mean, that's kind of a tough spot, um, but in in a typical spot for a second baseman, if there's no shift at all, Wong might actually be able to get to that ball, Um, but it's just, you know, he put it in a good place, what can you do? But when you talk about stat cast and you're looking at exit velocity, you're looking at launch angle, the expectation for a hit like that, a, a, a ball in play, like the one that Stallings hit in that situation, 85.8 off the bat, you're talking about an expected batting average of 230. So that's not that's not a not a hit that you necessarily are expecting to 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 get anything out of, but as it happened, not only did he get something out of it, it squirts through the infield, it ends up going for two runs. And so Flaherty said tonight, you know, he was frustrated for giving up that hit, but he knew, you know, after the the strikeout to Heredia, thought he was going to get out of it, gave up the hit to Stallings. Not much he can do about that. Knew he had to to bear down and and go get Gerard Dyson, not let this game get away from him. He was able to do that on a kind of a little number that that was in front of the plate. Flaherty ran up to grab it, wheeled and threw to Paul Goldsmith over at first. Flaherty gave a lot of credit to Goldie on that play, and it's not really something that I noticed in the moment but just talked about the footwork that it took from Goldschmidt because the ball almost hit Gerard Dyson from the perspective of Flaherty. Said it wasn't, you know, the throw that he wanted to make. He, he would have liked to have done better that uh, on that throw to first base. But again, we talk about the defense. I said yesterday that, in my opinion, this Cardinals team might be the best defensive team in baseball this year. Um, we didn't see that top to bottom tonight. We saw signs of it, uh, but we also saw some some rust, I think, that you had to shake off. You know, the game ends on a double play started by Colton Wong, and you go back and watch it. It was smooth as butter, not a routine play. Colton Wong certainly made it look like it was, but earlier in the game, there was a, a similar opportunity for a double play that I thought they were going to pull off, but DeYoung couldn't quite handle the exchange, so they got the out at second, ended up being a force out at second, but couldn't get the exchange off in time to, to throw it to Goldsmith, so uh, ended up kind of leaving it out on the field there, but again, I think it's just because we come to expect so much of these guys defensively because we know how, how good they can be and how good they are. And so when I saw that, I was just like, ah, you know, that's like not a play that it's like, it wasn't a bad play. It's just like I was like, oh, I think this is going to do it. I think they're going to pull this off. And then when they don't, you're kind of you're like, oh, well, what happened there? But again, game one of the season, certainly by the end of it, uh, the uh, double play combo of Wong and DeYoung was in full force because they were able to pull that off. Uh, in the ninth inning, which we'll go ahead and talk about now. You got that 5-2 lead going into the ninth. Paul DeYoung gets you the home run, 
and and I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about the ninth, and then I'm going to probably end the show by talking about Paul DeYoung because I I did it yesterday. I've done it several times recently, and even even going back into spring training, I talked Paul DeYoung. I said this guy's gonna have a heck of a season. The guy looks locked in. So I'm gonna talk about him in a minute. Let's get to KK first, though. Not the major league debut he probably would have liked to have had, but when I talk about the defense being a little bit up and down, mostly positive, I think they're a great defensive team, going to be just fine. But an error by Tommy Edmond in in the ninth, which he did have a diving catch earlier in the game that was really good, had one kind of glance off his glove, but it, had, he, had he not gotten in front of it, it was kind of to his right, toward the line. He's playing at third base down there, and so had he not gotten to that ball, I forget which inning it was, but... There was one that was to his right, had to dive to keep it in front of him, keep it on the infield, and had he not done so, it would have been a double into the corner, and so, you know, you give him credit for that, but made the error there in the ninth inning to start things off, and so that kind of puts KK behind the eight ball a little bit in his in his debut as a closer, and again, Mike Shield has said, you know, when we're doing these Zoom interviews, he says, well, KK's done it before. Again, I don't know when that was. Uh, he technically finished a, a game in the KBO playoffs to clinch but it was like in the 13th inning that he came in to close that game out. It wasn't like he was the designated closer. And so I'm not 100% sure exactly where Schulte's coming from with that. But, you know, I, I don't disagree with his point that he's a professional. He's going to adjust to the role from going from starter to closer. And maybe that adjustment will take a little bit of time. But tonight, it was looking pretty hittable. They were getting good contact on him. I think three balls in the inning, three of the five registered at over 100 miles per hour off the bat according to StatCast, and so definitely not the KK we had seen in Grapefruit League play and even in, in the, the couple outings I saw of him in summer camp where he was just flat-out missing bats. And then against the Royals on Wednesday, you know, he struck out the side, two of them looking, and so that's an indication of they just they, they were not seeing the ball well out of his hand. And tonight they clearly were, um, but again, he wasn't giving up long fly balls. I don't think any of the, the launch angles on those those hits were particularly dangerous. Um, had one line out, but that was a line out that was like eighty something off the bat. It wasn't a it wasn't as well hit as the grounders that they just smoked off him. And so took a little bit of settling in, you know, made made some better pitches as he went along, and of course got the big one, the grounder to Colton Wong to get out of the inning. That was another ball that I think was was pretty well hit. Uh, if you look at the stat cast on that situation. But at the end of the day, they got the win. They got out of it. Yeah, the, the ground ball double play to end the game was 101 off the bat of Stallings. So Stallings had a couple of couple of big knocks. And almost, I mean, in, in that situation, had he had he been able to come through there, we, we could be looking at a different outcome for the game. Um, but Colton Wong was able to just gobble that ball up, get it to DeYoung over the first. And, hey, there you go. Never in doubt. Nothing to worry about. Cardinals get out of there with a 5-4 to four win on opening day. Kind of a fun stat that Kwon Young Kim became the first Cardinal to register a save in his Major League debut since Brad Thompson back in 2005. I think Thompson did it with like a multi-inning. You know, they give you a save in, in a blowout game if you if you throw the final three innings or more. And I think that's what Thompson did for that to, uh, to get the save. He was really in mop-up duty, but but pitched three innings and got the save. And so KK does the same today uh, on Friday. And, you know, kind of a situation where, yeah, you give up a couple of runs. You had an error mixed in there. You gave up some hard-hit contact. But 
got out of the first one, you know, got it out of the way. And I think we'll see better things from KK to come. Not overly concerned after that first game. Yes, he was hit hard. Yes, it looked like they were seeing the ball out of his hand. Um, but, you know, maybe there were some nerves on his part. We didn't get to talk to KK tonight about the outing. And so hard to say what he what he feels like he was experiencing out there without getting the chance to, to hear from him. But I would imagine that you'll see him sharper going forward. Um, that certainly would be the hope for Kwon Young Kim in the closer role. But I do want to talk about Paul DeYoung here before we get out of here because, I, and again, had a couple of strikeouts early in the game. Then he took a walk and then ripped the homer like I know, like I knew he could. And so when a guy strikes out a couple of times in the game, you know, you might start to think, oh, boy, maybe maybe he's not doing quite as well as I thought he would because I've been saying, I've been been kind of sneaky about it, but I'm like, yeah, you know, if you guys are living in a state where it's legal, maybe consider kind of, you know, checking out the, uh, what's the MVP odds on, on Paul DeYoung to win National League MVP. I, and, and again, it, only one guy is going to win that award. And so it's, it's, you might be throwing your money away, but if I could throw, you know, not me, but somebody else who lives in a state who does that kind of thing and, and is not covering the St. Louis Cardinals for their profession, but you think about baseball, you know, gambling odds on an award situation like that, you probably get some great odds. So you throw ten bucks down on it if, if that's your if that's your thing. I, I think there are worse ways to spend ten dollars. So I like the young. I think he's gonna have a really good season. Um, you know, hopefully you don't see too many of those days where he strikes out twice in a game, but but what do they say? You know, if you homer, you walk. You strike out. Those are the three true outcomes. So he kind of covers the bases on that, and and is able to to get two very important runs for the Cardinals on the strength of that home run to get them elevated to the five to four win. So I'm just saying I I don't have any doubts about Paul DeYoung in the cleanup spot. Not only that, I think I think he'll end up as the best hitter on the Cardinals actually by the end of the season. Goldsmith had a couple of hits tonight, but I mean when you measure you know. What do you measure it in? Okay, I look at OPS. I look at slugging percentage. Certainly, you look at home runs and extra base hits, but those will kind of go go hand in hand. But I think among the regulars, certainly you have expectations for Goldsmith. A lot of people would say, you know, Matt Carpenter could bounce back to be kind of, you know, the, the, the top 10 MVP caliber player that he was in 2018. Um, Colton Wong, a top of the lineup, certainly on base percentage-wise. He was 361 last year to lead the team, did a really good job. Tommy Edmond led the team in OPS last year. Not as many at-bats, but still was up there around 850. And so that's that's impressive. I think on the whole, you might see DeYoung as the most balanced, quote-unquote, best hitter in the Cardinal lineup in 2020. I got to be bold about something, so that's kind of that's kind of where I've been. I'm, I'm riding the, the, the Paul DeYoung train for this year. And it's just, it's, it's just because I see him looking really good. I, I like what I see out of him. I know he struck out a couple of times tonight, but I, I think the, the good uh, is certainly going to outweigh the bad when it comes to him and excited to see what he can do this season. I think I'm going to wrap the show up here in just a moment. I do, real quickly before I go, want to uh, mention, obviously, the, the, the situation surrounding social justice and Black Lives Matter around Major League Baseball. It's something that they have has, has certainly come to the forefront of the conversation in recent days and weeks. And as we're seeing all of these games uh, begin on Thursday and Friday. Different teams in different games around the country are are making their own uh, stances. They're 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 getting the message out in, in their own particular ways. As we talked to Jack Flaherty, he said there's no right or wrong way to go about doing this. Everybody's going to protest in their own way. 
but certainly something that people are calling attention to. You know, the Cardinals, their intention was uh, to, they did the, the black cord and held the, the cord, the rope that went all the way around the foul territory. They did so in, in joint jointly with the Pittsburgh Pirates, who stood on the other side of, of the foul lines. And their plan was to do to take a knee as a team, the Cardinals, before the National Anthem. Something got a little mixed up with, with when they announced that it was time for the Anthem, and so they didn't quite get to do the knee. Uh, but the Cardinals were not kneeling for the Anthem. But but certainly something that's important on the hearts of a lot of these Cardinals players. And and we got a great opportunity to t- today to hear from Adam Wainwright on Friday about you know what it meant to him when the Cardinals all wore the Black Lives Matter t-shirts when they did their warm-ups on the field before the game. And I think, you know, it's I know it's a, a controversial topic, but I think if you're somebody who you hear the, the, the Black Lives Matter thing and you don't you don't like it, you, you think you don't like what the organization stands for, um, there's certainly a lot of, of opinions out there, and I understand that. I would definitely recommend, I wrote for KMOV, and, and posted, you know, some of the the things that Adam Wainwright had to say. I think are definitely valuable, no matter no matter what what side of the issue you fall on. I think it's important to just to be able to hear what these human beings have to say. They're sharing their hearts about situations, and if you're going to disagree with somebody after the fact, you know, I think that's just something that's going to happen. That's just human nature, nature of discourse and conversation. That's the way it goes. But I, I think it's important to. Before you make that determination of I'm writing you off, I'm 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 not going to listen to what you have to say. I think I think it would be great to just have everybody on both sides of 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 of, of an issue read through what Adam Wainwright had to say. You can find my story at kmov.com on on the Cardinals and and what they did with the prior to the national anthem and involving that situation on Friday on opening day. Um, and, and you know if it's something that you're like I'm not in support of that. Maybe read Adam Wainwright what he had to say because he might be supporting, I think, something a little bit different than what you're concerned about uh, his support actually being for. He made it pretty clear who he was supporting, who he really wasn't throwing any support behind, talking about, you know, people talk about Black Lives Matter and there's actually an organization that that does some things that people disagree with. That wasn't really what Adam Wainwright was about. And I think John Moselak as well had some quotes in the article that I wrote that was kind of articulating the same thing that... I think people can look at this as a positive, talking about the unity that is that has been established with within the Cardinals and within other teams around baseball, um, more so than maybe the negative that could that you could try to point to. But um, again, trying to be respectful of everybody's views. But I, I think most important, if you've got a view one way or the other, it's it's always good to to have the discourse and to read what people are saying on the other side because they're sharing their hearts too, and. Rather than try to harden our hearts at the beginning of something and say, ah, I already know that I disagree with you. So instead of kind of being open-minded and at least hearing what you have to say, I think the tendency a lot of times is to, to shut ourselves off and to try to, you know, come up with a good comeback or try to prove the other person wrong. I think it would just be better as a, you know, as a society and in, in, in general to just say, hey, I'm going to be willing to at least read what you have to say. And if I still disagree with it after the fact, then, then so be it. But, but at least I'm going to give you that chance and that respect. And I think if anybody in this world deserves it, especially you talking about the sporting world, um, deserves that kind of respect. It's Adam Wainwright because he's you know a class A human being. Cardinals fans know that as well as anybody. So that's all I've got. I would just love to 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 hear from you too after the fact. Go ahead and read my article at KMOV. 
just breaking down kind of what the Cardinals did, um, standing for the national anthem, of course, but then after the fact, uh, you know, kind of the other things they had going on with that pregame today. And I thought a, a quote that didn't make it in there, but I did tweet about it that Adam Wainwright said was, you know, regardless, he was he was going to stand with his hand over his heart for the anthem um, because he is, quote, tied for first in loving his country. So I thought that was kind of a fun quote from Wainwright, but um, definitely a, a, a serious issue that's serious for a lot of people, but also um, I think a, a good job of Wainwright by to, to explain his, his thought process throughout it. So that's all I've got for you for this episode of B-Shape Daily. I sincerely appreciate you guys if you stuck with me through the end of it. Um, if you haven't already, would love to have you subscribe to the show. You can do it at Spotify. You can do it at Apple Podcasts if you're an iPhone user. I myself do not have an iPhone, but I recognize that most people do, and that can be a very convenient way to listen to podcasts like this one. And so um, if that's the way you roll, I, I, I respect it. And I think maybe next time I get a phone, it'll be an iPhone because I just find that it's so much more compatible with the lives of my friends and family because darn near everybody else has an iPhone too. At least my friends do. My family is more of a split vote with a lot of Android, but my wife does have an iPhone. Yeah, anyway, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts is another place you can find the show. And give me a follow on Twitter at bshafer12. You can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash bshafer12. And I'm on Instagram too if you want to see some pictures. I posted a nice picture uh, to Instagram of me and my nephew, Lucas. I call him Tukas, um, at the at the family farm the other weekend. So I was pushing him on the swing. That was nice. Anyway, that's what I got going on. Appreciate you guys for joining me. Uh, I'm going to get this episode up. Hopefully, you'll be able to listen to it on Saturday morning during during your morning or, or, or early afternoon before the game. It's a 1:15 start on Saturday. I'll plan to get down there to Bush Stadium and hopefully be able to put up an episode uh, probably Saturday night. I know it's B-shaped daily, but sometimes it can be B-shaped twice in one day um, because if I can get it up Saturday night for you, that way you'll be able to listen to it hopefully before Sunday's matinee, another afternoon start at Bush Stadium as the Cardinals will wrap up the series against the Pirates. Tomorrow on Saturday, we've got, it'll be Adam Wainwright. I couldn't tell you who he's opposing because, the you know what, the Pittsburgh Pirates don't have that many pitchers that I know. That's not true. Joe Musgrove was today. I knew who he was. I'm not going to look it up, though. I know Chris Archer's hurt. So Adam Wainwright will be pitching against somebody on Saturday, and we'll break it down for you after the game on Saturday night with the next episode of B-Shape Daily. Until then, we'll talk to you later on today.